Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBH. I'm Sherry Alexander, and we want to welcome our guest today, Elizabeth Pierce, author most recently of Drinked at New Orleans, a guide to the best cocktail bars, dives, and speakeasies. Welcome to Writers Forum, Elizabeth. Thank you. I am happy to be here. You are a Greater New Orleans native. Yes, uh, born and reared in Covington, and then crossed the lake and never went back. And now you're uh, you hang out in where the Bywater. Yes, I live on Desire. And you, besides being a writer, you're just kind of a drink expert. You um, were a co-founder of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. You do tours, classes. I know you have a blog. So um, I, I am a drinks historian and run the company Drink and Learn, which, of course, is the best way to learn ever, particularly in this city. And uh, through that, I, I do tours and classes telling the history of New Orleans through its iconic beverages. And uh, a lot of people, uh, of course, it's a lot out a lot of out-of-towners that I encounter ask me, you know, how did you start doing this? And um, the origins are, of course, in uh, helping to create and open the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. I was the original curator there, and I continue to uh, work with the museum as their drinks curator. Well, you certainly know a lot about it, and um, your book is actually part, this book is part of a series. Um, Michael Murphy wrote the first few, and he wrote the introduction, but obviously when it came to uh, eating or um, something like that, he could write the book, but I guess he very wisely yielded this one to you because you, I mean, you had already literally written the book. You had the French Quarter uh, Drinking Guide, Drinking Companion. You were one of the co-authors. So you're really the man, so to speak. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Michael um, <clears throat> Michael and I had appeared on uh, several panels because uh, Eat Dat and the French Quarter Drinking Companion came out around the same time. So we were both shilling um, for our respective books, and then um, he contacted me when it was time to do Drink Dat, and, and uh, I think it was both be gracious— uh, he graciously offered me the opportunity to write it, but I also think that uh, he saw before him the challenge of visiting a um, hundred and something bars around the city, and um, it was daunting. But I did it. <laughs> I, I I did Somebody it. Somebody had to do it, right? Uh, with a with a grateful thanks to my husband uh, Lee Domeng, who also. Um, came along for uh, moral and other support. Yeah, a lady can't just go into the bars alone at night. Some of the bars, some of the, what you could say, dives and speakeasies kind of thing. Well, and also <laughs> I, I think that there is, um, there are certainly some bars I visited alone, and that is its own kind of experience. And I, I do think it's, I try to include when, um, uh, when a bar felt okay to drink in alone, because I think that a lot of travelers, both men and women, but particularly women, want to know, can I go and just sit and not be bothered and feel secure? Um, so I, I tried to do that as well, because um, drinking alone is its own experience. But 
frankly, it's more fun to go with someone. And when Lee was tired, uh, there were many, many friends who were more than willing to hop on board and um, and Uber out to parts unknown and, you know, drink so I could make my deadline. Well, in the first book, you, you made a couple of points about how how why there's so much drinking in New Orleans. We're a little different from a lot of other towns. Well, I think that <clears throat> um, how we drink and how, really how we think about drinking is something that's different from um, a lot of parts of the United States. I mean, New Orleanians know that we um, we see ourselves sometimes as the, the northern outpost of the Caribbean, um, we cling to this um, French heritage, which is frankly very Catholic, organized around feast days. Our, you know, our seasons are not defined as winter, spring, summer, fall, but, um, you know, carnival, jazz fest, make it through the summer and then get into Christmas. Um, but the way that we the the way that we see drinking is this integral part of our sociocultural experience. Um, when you, when someone comes to your home, you offer them a drink. When you go to watch your kids play Little League, you're sipping on a beer. And no one looks askance at that. It isn't this horrifying, um, immoral activity that needs to be kept indoors. And I think a lot of that is connected to our um, embrace of, not only acceptance, embrace of the go cup, you know, the um, the go cup allows you to take the, if I can call it, the ethos of the bar, which is not only merely conviviality, but a certain openness, an openness to the person that might be sitting next to you on the bar stool, right? And literally openness. <clears throat> I mean, most places you don't walk around on the street with a drink. Right. There are, there are very few places in the United States that allow that. And I think that a, what a lot of tourists experience, and this is certainly on Bourbon Street, is this kind of funneling, right, where it is, the party is on the street. But, um, as, but New Orleanians also know that the party can be um, still present, although a little more subdued, as you maybe get your go cup and you walk home uh, from your neighborhood watering hole. Um, and, and so that this kind of frank um, acceptance of drinking as a part of just how we live, that is, um, it, it is unusual. And that um, bleeds into how bars function um, both in, in the French Quarter, the, let's say the touristy areas, and in the rest of the city. And so it was, it was a real delight um, having done the French Quarter Drinking Companion where the boundaries were very tight, right? And um, to then take that, um, this ability to kind of be not so much an outsider, but certainly someone who is chronicling and a asking questions like, what does it mean to drink in New Orleans? And to really do that in the whole city. And um, <clears throat> you um, you point out that until now, <laughs> for a very long time, we haven't had a closing of the bars now. there's As we're taping this, there is some talk 
um, in an attempt to cut down on crime, that perhaps the bars in the French Quarter should lock in people maybe at 3 o'clock? Yes. I mean, how is that going to work? Uh, uh, so um, I don't actually know how that could work. Um, I'm, I'm not going to comment on its um, appropriateness or not, but the, the logistics, um, it makes me wonder if the people who have come up with this idea have actually been out in the French Quarter at 3 o'clock in the morning. Well, so one of the papers um, did a study or published some results that really the crime um, lessens at three from 3 to 6 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, also, and you point out, some of those bars don't have locks on their doors. Yes, there's, there's at least one or two that um, would have to go uh, visit... Um, a locksmith. Yeah, so visit the uh, Ace Hardware store and uh, acquire something to. Well, as as with so many things going on right now, politically and um, locally and nationally, we'll have to wait and see. Um, you have before you go into the bar by bar guide. You talk about some of our most famous drinks. Um, how about the Sazerac? So I. Um... I am a fan of the Sazerac, both uh, aesthetically and uh, historically. Um, it's it's a really great story um, of how Antoine Peychaud settles in New Orleans and opens this pharmacy, creates or or serves up his his bitters, um, and then. You well, know, these, ends this up, was medicine. I mean, people... Bitters were medicine, yeah. yes. Well, and even still, if your tummy's upset, you can have a spoonful of bitters. Um, and then it they the bitters end up being served at the Sazerac bar. And the Sazerac bar, in, in an iteration of it, is still around. Marion Lejean's Herb Saint becomes this replacement for absinthe. And yeah, what we found out about absinthe, that it really wasn't good for our health. Well, uh, the way that it was made back then, it certainly wasn't because lots of additives were included. Absinthe is legal again as of 2008 because science trumped myth and they discovered that the um, absinthe in the past that was making people uh, ill was was adulterated with lots of other substances. So there is an absinthe being made in New Orleans now. There's a distillery called Atelier V that uh, does a traditional green absinthe, but also a, a red absinthe. It's really beautiful. Well, and then I like the Pimm's Cup myself. Tell us about Pimm's Cup. So uh, the Pimm's is great for New Orleans because uh, you can drink a lot of it and not um, feel the worse for wear. And that was the reason that it was it was served at the Napoleon House was the, the owner, Mr. Imposada, didn't like drunks. And so he encouraged people to drink a Pimm's because it was so uh, low proof. And now um, the Napoleon House is PIM's largest account in the United States. Wow. That's how many PIMs they serve. But they didn't invent it. It was British. As, 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 right, it's British. Many people think that they did, but but, but they did not. And the Gin Fizz, the Ramos Gin Fizz. So, uh, again, a, a great uh, New Orleans story, a, a drink that is grounded in, uh, in New Orleans, Henry Ramos. Um, bar owner, saloon owner, um, who is so popular. He has all of these 
Shaker Boys um, mixing up the drink and um, course, shaking, not mixing. Shaking, <laughs> shaking. And um, of course, you couldn't get it during Prohibition. He closes during Prohibition. And actually, Henry Remus died during Prohibition. He never made a drink again, which is very sad. But fortunately, he allowed the recipe to be printed before he died. And so that's why we are still able to make it. And I guess we have to mention, it's really, in my mind, a tourist drink. But so many people, of course, we go on the web, so people are listening from all over. The hurricane. So the hurricane is a great story. It is in. It is created as a result of a whiskey shortage that happens during World War II. And, of course, because we're so close to the Caribbean, you could, um, you know, you could get rum. And a hurricane made well, made, say, at Latitude 29 or Tiki Tolteca, these, or in Cane and Table, all these great new tiki and rum bars. Um, you can, you'll taste what it was, made with passion fruit juice and rum. Um, but I still say go to Pat O'Brien's. It's a wonderful bar. And it's get an experience. And, and I mean, the fountain of fire, it's, it's beautiful. But just, you know, get a gin and tonic or a beer. <laughs> um, now, before you went neighborhood by neighborhood, you told us a little bit about Bourbon Street that a lot of people don't realize. It wasn't always what we think of as Bourbon Street today. Well, I really recommend reading Richard Campanella's uh, Bourbon Street, A Geography, uh, which chronicles the evolution um, and transformation of that street. And we've interviewed him, and he, he yeah, and it. and um, um, you know, the short answer is it it doesn't really come into its own until around World War II. And it was residential. Yes, I mean, absolutely. In the um, early nineteenth century, there were more bars on Decatur than there ever were on Bourbon Street, which makes sense because that's the part that's closer to the river. And then the Go Cups came along. You know, when I travel, sometimes I forget. That I'm not in New Orleans, and I'll ask for a go cup, and people just look at me and they say, "You you want to take this to go?" They, you know, we don't even realize that not everybody knows what a go cup is. Well, it's a very civilized <laughs> way. Again, again, as I talked about, like how we think about drinking as not a thing that needs to be hidden away indoors and monitored, in you know, kept away from the children. It is just a thing that is. It's like eating or. Um, or drinking coffee or, or anything like that. Well, you have so many listings. We can only have time for maybe, you know, half a dozen or a dozen. Uh, the carousel in the Monte Leone Hotel. So um, what I include, Drink Dad is organized by neighborhood. And so you have, a, and it was, it was very hard to choose. What are the bars that go in? And, of course, the nature of a list is, you're, I'm going, I am certain that I have left out some favorite bars um, and people are welcome to share with me why they wished their, you know, bar might be in. Um, but there are some, uh, there's some iconic bars, historic bars that were, uh, that were easy. They were, it was easy to decide to put in the yes and the no column. And, and of course, uh, both Carousel and Sazerac in historic hotels and they, they are the kind of bar, I think, that most New Orleanians, you know, would agree on, um, if, if whether you're a visitor or not. We're all, we're all fans of going there. Um, but then as you move through the neighborhoods, uh, moving into Mid-City or into the Warehouse District and, and Uptown, um, then it became a real challenge of trying to choose a 
bars that that felt like their neighborhood or felt of their place that had something particular or notable to offer or that just let's say you're staying in um, an Airbnb, which is still legal, uh, or a bed and breakfast, or, or you're even just visiting family. You know, what are the places that are near you? And so each chapter opens with this um, kind of a snapshot of what makes the Garden District the Garden District or Mid-City. And then um, here are these bars that seem to kind of embody that character. Well, I have to, um, before you leave the French Quarter and go into the neighborhoods, I do have to give this disclaimer um, I'm an affiliate of the people that run Molly's at the market and several other bars, um, the late, great Jim Monahan, and now his um, Jim Monahan Jr. and Jim Monahan Trey. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly that's a favorite of many people, especially journalists. And you point out that it's uh, unique in several ways, including the fact that the Publicans' ashes reside behind the bar. Yes. Um, in Napoleon House, and you, of course, remind us that Napoleon really never visited there, no matter what the buggy drivers say. Right. Um, then when you start on the neighborhoods, uh, Algiers, the Saturn Bar, you, you have to tell us about Saturn Bar. Oh, so the <clears throat> the Saturn Bar is in the Bywater, uh, one one. Uh, one chapter, one more chapter. Um, and uh, I really, you know, I I live very near the Saturn Bar, and, and I've certainly had a lot of drinks there, uh, if only because of proximity. But I really enjoyed learning about not only the history of the owner, but the history of all the paintings that, um, that adorn the place, all of the art. And... Um, it's a little I, scary when you first go. It's it is a bit. It's an odd. It's an odd place. But um, learning about the the artist and um, kind of the he he just kind of offered. You know, you want you want me to paint something, and then it turned into this enormous project. Um, so uh, I, I didn't grow up in New Orleans, but I have lived here long enough to really understand. Um, how neighborhood interactions work. And it seems that, you know, among people who live near each other, and you can see the owner of the Saturn Bar and the guy who painted, they they went to school together. You know, they'd known each other since they were children. So that seems to encompass, like, what makes New Orleans still New Orleans is, is not only the creation of this crazy art and this place that's been around for a while, but the fact that the two guys, you know have known each other since children. Well, moving along, um, uh, on Claiborne, you have the mother-in-law lounge, which (laughs) everybody loves the mother-in-law lounge. Again, and that's, that's some really amazing art adorning it. And, um, and a tremendous story of, you know, Miss Antoinette and Ernie Cato, you know, creating this spot coming back from Katrina. Um, and when you go there, it, you cannot help, but, uh, end up, you know, looking at everything on the walls, both ex- internally and externally, as well as enjoying some fantastic music. And Kermit Ruffins has now taken over. Um, I yes, I think that he's. Uh, uh, I think that he is still there. And at the time of this uh, recording. The time, okay. 
the um, in Mid City, Finn McCool's, and you, you talk about the uh, Pattersons and what they've contributed to really our culture. Yes, and and again, it's about um, peop- It's about how these publicans, these bar owners, um, are really um, trying to create these these third places, right? These places of community, places where all the folks who live in a neighborhood are welcome to interact with each other, um, where you have lives intersecting where they never would in other, you know, they wouldn't in other places. And again, it's the sitting next to the person on the bar stool and you talk to them and you learn about their life. Um, and the Pattersons really embody, like this, when I, in, in, in interviewing them, it's this like visceral passion for their neighborhood and for all of these uh, events that they create that permit and encourage um, folks to just talk to each other um, well, while they contribute to the neighborhood. They and especially after the storm, I remember certainly. they were such a uh, gathering place. For right. People. The the rebuilding of Fins was a, a very a, a landmark process in the rebuilding of Mid City, and it really brought people together especially a lot of young people mm-hmm. um, who now seem to flock to Mid-City. Um, the Poncha train, now we're moving across town because we don't have much time. Well, I, I, I barely made it. They, they opened just in time for me to have a quick visit before the manuscript was due. And, um, but I had... Reopened. Reopened. Mm-hmm. I had, but I had certainly been there uh, before, and I, I'm... So glad that they kept the original murals in the what they call the you know in the Bayou Bar. Um, it it still it feels like it did you know the last time I visited, um, but also the uh, now having this rooftop rooftop view of the city, which is is really lovely. And Phil Melanson is back where mm-hmm. he was. Yes, yes, T- tinkling the ivory, tickling the ivories, tickling the ivories, and the columns. I mean, folks, for people that are listening from and aren't fortunate enough to be with us here in New Orleans, uh, now we're back on St. Charles Avenue. We're in the Garden District, technically, I guess. Um, When I first uh, moved to New Orleans, I lived uptown about three blocks from the Columns. So I I spent a lot of money there. (laughs) And uh, now that I live downtown, it's not a place I visit as often. And so it's it was a it's always a treat, you know, kind of a real delight to go there and uh, find a quiet, cozy corner, you know, in one of their interior rooms or to snag a, a spot on the balcony and, I mean, sorry, on the, the porch and um, watch the streetcars roll by. Uh, again, there's all this this history that you're just sitting amongst and enjoying. And it's a Victorian hotel in addition. Um, they film Pretty Baby there, so mm-hmm. a lot of people... I mean, it still looks like it must have looked 100 years ago. Right. Um, moving on uptown, uh, Fat Harry's has an interesting history. Um, Which I didn't know. And so when um, I, uh, one of the perks of writing this book is learning the history of places that I certainly popped into. Um, it's, it's a spot that I've, you know, had a drink, especially during, during Mardi Gras, and, um, you know, seeing that it, it's a bunch of guys who went to Loyola together. And then, again, after Katrina, 
it becomes this um, this haven and this resource and refuge. Yeah, a lot of I spent some years uh, on the faculty at Loyola, and I know a lot of Loyola students. And I think the owner's name, the original owner, his middle name was Ignatius. Mm-hmm. Which yes, Ignatius. Yeah, he went to the right school. Uh huh. Um, in moving in now in further uptown, uh, Cooter Browns on the Carrollton area. Well, it's a place that I've always enjoyed uh, drinking because uh, it was one of the earliest spots where you could get really good beer. Um, you know, the not not just the the general brands. Um, and the food is pretty good. And the food is the food is now great. Uh, it's always been solid, and and now it's it's. Um, extra solid, I guess. Um, but again, learning the history of the, the artist who did all of the um, the famous people holding the, the beer uh, beer cans and beer bottles. And was um, there really a, an historic person named Cooter Brown? Uh, allegedly, during the Civil War. Um, but I did not bother to see if he actually existed. I'm just going to stick with the you legend. You were saying people toast both sides of the Civil War, or some people call it the late unpleasantness. Yes. Um, now we could go on and on and, and you have what, a hundred? There's over a hundred, I think, uh, 110 or 15 made it into drink debt. Um, I, I think it's uh, appropriate that I'm not entirely sure how many bars finally made the cut. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's over a hundred. I encourage New Orleanians to, um, to pick it up. And take it as a challenge, you know, to go to all to of go them. to all of them. But you'll and most of them, uh, I would say, most New Orleanians have been to most of the bars. But um, for, I was surprised at how many I've been to. I just didn't realize. Well, once you sit down and start, you know, writing the list. But um, I think that uh, just like the French Quarter Drinking Companion, it offers uh, for New Orleanians. Um, just kind of an, an alternative way to look at your city um, because there's there's bars you've been to, you know, maybe it's your traditional watering hole, the place you go to when, when things are special. But um, it, for, for me, writing it, it, it made me kind of look at my city a little differently. And I hope that I conveyed that um, to the reader, a, a different way of thinking about New Orleans. And next you're working on uh, maybe a book on prohibition? Is that in the works? Uh, uh, kind of. Um, there, There's a couple of projects that are um, uh, in the, you know, simmering on the pot as well as a podcast uh, that is taking a lot of my uh, energy. And um, I'll hopefully those will be launching um, in 2017. Well, good luck. And I really enjoyed reading the the first book that you uh, co-wrote and certainly drinked at. Um, you've been listening to Writers Forum, and we want to thank our guest today, um, Elizabeth Pierce, and her most recent book is Drink Debt, New Orleans, A Guide to the Best Cocktail Bars, Dives, and Speakeasies. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH. <laughs>